I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And I'm Lindsay Collins. What? And this is Free Cookies Double Stuff Edition. It is the multi-pack. This is the Sam's Club edition of Free Cookies. Costco. A humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today. If you're not already confused... Um, and today we have the amazing Grady Hendrix on the show. Wildly funny, quirky, dripping with horror and humor. Ooh, dripping with horror and humor. Dripping, dripping with horror and humor. So it's like he's bloody, but also... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and we're going to have a proper bio for Mr. Grady Hendrix later. And we have a great interview with him. But we wanted to start, as you can tell, with Lindsay Collins, our producer, who also... Uh, runs the F and B radio, which is an amazing podcast. And as you, you may have guessed from the title, maybe not if you're not in the food, that's short for food and bev, which yes. is short for food and beverage, which also means she works in restaurants. Yes. So we wanted to talk about some current events that yeah. are happening in the world. So quickly for our listeners who don't follow the tabloid headlines, we had on our show... About five episodes ago, Allison Roman, who is the author of the cookbook, Cookbooks, Dining In and Nothing Fancy. And we interviewed her live in Charleston during Charleston Food and Wine. And she got herself in a little bit of turmoil the past week. A little after bit of hot pasta water. Hot pasta water. <laughs> yes, like <she> did. <laughs> scorching pizza oven temperatures. Um, when she spoke disparagingly of Chrissy Teigen, who wrote Cravings and has a business around that cookbook and also Marie Kondo, who is the, you know, net, she has a Netflix show and a book. She about, sparks joy. Yeah. About decluttering your life. And so, so Allison kind of s- stepped in it by talking about those two women and their careers and the ways in which that she, she called them sellouts. Yeah. She yeah. basically called them. So thank you. Lindsay's over here. Like Kate, stop trying to be, <laughs> I, know, so I don't know why we're trying to put yeah. some buttercream icing so, on this. We, because Allison has been on the show and because it is something that Catherine and I talk about. And even when Lindsay's over too, we talk about like cancel culture in yeah. the current culture. And so we, we wanted to talk about, this Allison, Chrissy Teigen, Marie Kondo the drama. It, it's important for listeners to know if you have no idea who Allison Roman is that she is. I want to say like the indie queen, younger edition of. She's the millennial hipster, like Jada De Laurentiis or or Rachel Ray. You know, like think of the big female names yeah. in the food world, and Allison is that young, early thirties something. Yeah, she's like I, I think she's hygiene kind of, wearing. Yeah. Oh my god, I thought you said hygiene. Hygiene. Oh, she's got hygiene. <laughs> I wasted denim wearing. Yeah, she's like I mean, she's like a hipster Julia Child. There you go. That's you know? what I was gonna say, Lindsay. Really? But then I thought, no. yeah, no, she is because uh, my favorite Julia Child quote is when she drops the chicken like mid taping and the chicken falls on the floor and she goes. If the chicken falls on the floor, just pick it up. <laughs> Who's to see? Like, she's just really roll with the punches. Like, I've got all this technique, but I bring it to you in a really concise, like, approachable way that you can make amazingly well-researched recipes at home, which is what Allison does bring to the table. Yeah. Um, but she has, yeah, she's got a persona, and she's like this rising star in the food world. I'm still amazed how so many people, I'll be like, yo, are you following the Allison Roman thing? And they're just like... I'm sorry. What? Right. So there's there is you like a you insular bubble, yeah. yeah, where you're like really, really into her or really, really not. Um, but her man, she just it's so baffling because you're like, how do you miss and say something like that yeah. when you're on a trajectory that she's on? It's like, yeah. it's, well, which we should we explain what she said just so the listeners. Aren't. I think I, I covered it when I said she spoke disparagingly about Chrissy Teigen's career as well yes. as Marie Kondo's career specifically choices. about building an empire. Yeah. I think the interviewee, the interviewer, was asking her, you know, what's the next step for us? She had a TV show coming up, and this and that, and spoke very disparagingly about Chrissy Teigen's line at Target and and product lines and. You know, yeah. kind of the sensible next thing that you would do when you have a successful career in the culinary world. Here's what I find it really interesting about the drama. One is why I go through stages when I'm following it. Like the initial stage, I'm just gathering intel. All right? And then there's the stage where like I have my own moral outrage about it. Then there's the stage of feeling some level of compassion 
for Allison. And that's kind of where I live right now. Like I went through my, oh my God, what, like what an idiot. How could she say these things? But I, I do, does everybody go through those yeah. stages? Like, and we where all are say you idiotic guys? things. We just don't have it published all over the interwebs. Right. Yeah. And I think- not to excuse what she said at all. That's not, no, I, I'm not no. coming as like an apologist over here. I just want to point that out. No, I think we're dealing with a really weird um, dynamic with the internet taking off and people living on the internet and information being available to everyone. And it's the, the fact is people just, not all people are good or bad or black or white right. in terms of like good and evil. Um, it's there, people are that you like do things that are terrible. I mean, have anybody mm-hmm. ever found out that their parents are like not the best people in the whole world? Like that's a real thing. <laughs> But I think the internet and celebrity in particular, like it comes with a huge responsibility to watch what you say everywhere and just generally like not only put your best face forward, but actually live that and walk that walk. And it's, I mean, I don't know. I It's inexcusable and I think it's just idiotic as like as a career move. I'm yeah. like, uh, what are you doing? Like, why would you ever pick women of color. Exactly. Why when there's like, if you're going to criticize quote unquote selling out or, you know, making products or creating a product line or whatever it is that you, you're too cool for. Um, there's just so many other obvious examples <laughs> that like aren't disparaging of a specific race. Right. You could just punch up at Gwyneth Paltrow. Like we all Come do. Come on. Yeah. Like everybody Come all on. the time, Rachel Ray, like there's just all these people that have done that over the years. Ina garden that are, that are like, you're allowed to th- call that selling out, I think. But the odd and inexcusable thing was them both being Asian Americans who already struggle so hard, um, to get a seat to get at past the, table. the wall of whiteness, yeah, yeah. yeah. and and every woman of color, and uh, there's so the fact that it was two women of color um, has also put the spotlight on Allison's recipes, which so the mm. stew, the, the stew, mm-hmm. which I don't, I'm not sure what she originally called it, but this is what you know her, what she's known for that went viral on the internet, and it's basically a chickpea, turmeric, coconut milk, yes, soup, which. Is All signs point to Asia. Yes. Like a very- As with so many of her recipes. Classic Indian Thai influenced. And the, people are pointing out the appropriation of many of her recipes that she uses fish sauce and she uses all these, these Indian ingredients without giving any, like not even just saying like, I don't think there needs to be a big paragraph about how she traveled to India and was influenced by the flavors. But there is something to be said about this really famous white woman- Capitalizing on those type of recipes, and yes, <laughs> and, and and calling it the stew. And, we, and when we were out for our walk the other day, we were talking about how calling it the stew signals to like everyday Americans who are making it, like, oh, this isn't a curry, right? Mm-hmm. No, this is an American thing. It's whitewashing it. Yeah, <laughs> right? this is the stew. Right. And so that to me gets probably down a thread of like cultural appropriation that we're not prepared because I feel like now. You, you need like a PhD to really understand certain threads of it on all different levels. But it does take you back to cancel culture. Is it time to cancel Alison Roman because of this? Mm. I, I think that's the big question mark right now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what's going to happen to her career after this? I, yeah, one of, my, one of my friends on Twitter was like, well, since the um, Summer Olympics have been canceled, it's nice that we still have diving because we've seen Alison Roman <laughs> swan dive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her career. Own career. Yeah. Off of a very high perch. No, I, like so high. Had the world on a string. I think the Icarus, convers- if you will. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think the conversation about whose food is it anyway is like such a such a complicated mm. conversation because what it really comes down to is is who has, if there isn't open and equal access to the platforms and you're using your platform to monetize and propel yeah. your career, using recipes that aren't, your recipes, I think that is where it gets kind of messy. I think if you're just a person like me personally, I I spend my life just like learning about other cultures. I want to learn what people eat. I think that's how we break down barriers between like misunderstanding other cultures. It's a I common think, language. Yeah. I think it's I think it's one of the, the things that is gonna do the most healing is understanding what other people eat. I think when you start making money off of that <laughs> without mm-hmm. properly citing it, I think that's when it gets ugly. So there's just so many so many layers to what Allison did that that seems confusing. And Kate, I'm with you with the with the compassion for Allison because at the same time 
it feels very hypocritical to be like, don't put women down. And then everyone on her, like mm. calling her bi- a bitch, call- telling her she fucking sucks, like saying just really, like she's still the a person. The thread is very dangerous. Still a person. And I think that you, if you want respect, you have to give respect. And even if someone fucks up, it's like, you're really not any better if you're, if you're like showing up to throw tomatoes. I think you have to be like, you can choose to not follow her. You can choose to not financially support her. That's your right, but I think when you get into just basically doing exactly what she did, you kind of you go low. Yeah. Well, just having been in sports media for so long, a lot of these conversations would take place whether it was about like a domestic violence issue with an athlete. Mm-hmm. You get you there is this craving as a human when you see something that f- flashing red lights like somebody did something wrong where you like, it's such an easy climb onto your moral high horse Mm. and it makes you feel good. There's that instantaneous, like I'm morally signaling that like, I would never do something (laughs) like that. And I support the people that everyone else is saying were wronged in this issue, which is signaling me as an ethical, moral person. But whenever I, whenever I want to cash in on that quick high, I try, I try to just like tone it down a little bit because that's not, that's where the empathy bug comes in, because I think in theory, with you see someone that you think is doing something morally wrong, then you can construct this essay in your head of what you would say to them because it's so ethically wrong and you want to set them straight because you're an ethical person. But by the time you transcribe that concept into what would be a, a an essay or tw- tweet or, or an Instagram, Instagram comment. comment I would hope, at least from my personal experience, that empathy stands in my, the way of me needing to feel like I am a superior being in the situation. Because right. there's truly nothing, I think, in these circumstances that you can say. I mean, there are people who are very well-spoken and kind, but like Lindsay said, like if you don't agree with her anymore, don't support her financially. Don't buy her stuff. There's Because then it becomes more about you and how you want to be perceived in culture and that's as opposed to what the person has done in the first place. And that's where I think this whole thing gets tricky and muddled is not Allison's what she said, but then the pool of everyone's responses, which are more about them than even the situation. And, but then there are people who are the recipient of all of that. And that's where it gets to be. And they have to swallow all of it, regardless of what it is. And I think the the moral of the story is that we should end with a mythological lesson for everyone. Because when Lindsay walked in to record our episode today, what what did you say Alison Roman had done, Lindsay? She Icarused herself. She Icarused herself. (laughs) She flew too To which Kate was like, Icarus. 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 And... I, I was saying that with like a question mark at the yes, end. Yes, that, that was Icarus? me furrowing my brow. It was like Icarus. <laughs> Icarus, Icarus. I know that name. Is Was he a really fast runner in Greek? <laughs> what was he? And your lesson today, my children, Icarus, the son of Daedalus, the great builder from Greek mythology, who nice. built his son wings made out of wax because he wished to fly. And they flew together, but pride, hubris, took over them as they flew too close to the sun and the pending heat of the sun melted his wings where Icarus fell to the earth never to breathe again. So what mm. you're saying is Chrissy Teigen is the sun. <laughs> Especially, yes. I mean, in, okay. in this situation, so, definitely. Or yeah. is it Marie? Because she sparks some hot ass joy. That is some hot ass joy. <laughs> I love my joy and I love it hot. Okay. I like hot joy. Hot joy, everybody. Keep it, <laughs> keep it piping hot. <laughs> <laughs> Grady Hendricks is a novelist and screenwriter based in New York City. He is the Bram Stoker award-winning author of Paperbacks from Hell and the Shirley Jackson and Locus Award-nominated author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, and We Sold Our Souls. He is also the author of The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is a New York Times bestseller. We are now joined by Grady Hendricks, who is the... Congratulations, New York Times bestselling author of The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Um, Grady, I first heard about you from our mutual friend, Jonathan Sanchez, who runs Blue Bicycle Books here in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, when he found out that I I love vampires and fantasy and all that, he's like, oh my God, you you have to know about Grady. And so I pre-ordered your book, I feel like, Two years ago, I know before that's not you wrote possible, it, pretty much. I was I've been waiting my entire life for this book to be born, um, 
And I just, before we get going, I have to talk about how I think this might be the best cover art I have ever seen. Cork Books does not mess around, Grady. Actually, yeah, they most do. of your books are the best covers I've ever seen for books. They're insane. Yeah, you know, they do a really, really good job with the design, which I appreciate. And they it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of pressure on publishers to sort of toe the line and have cover design that matches everyone else's. And they really, it takes a lot of courage for a small publisher to actually not do that. So I've always been really appreciative. And actually that's, so I did a book about a haunted Ikea called Horror Store. Mm-hmm. And Andy <laughs> Reed was the art director on that and the designer. And she's the person who did uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. God, and for people who have not seen it right now, although I'm sure everybody's Googling as they're listening to this, it's it's two big, juicy peaches with a vampire bite mark with blood dripping out of the peach. And it's just, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's at the bookstore and it's like, it's that book in a sea of books that just shouts out to you. Um, did, did you, did you, were you part of the concept of that or did, was your designer like, slate it, here you go. <laughs> well, yeah, we talked about it a lot and this is actually, um, you know, something that uh, Andy kind of came up with on her own because originally we were going in a totally different direction. Um, but she really like, you know, wanted to class it up and, and thought this would read really well. And we went through a lot of iterations, though, on peaches because it is really hard for a peach not to look like a portion of the human anatomy. Yes. And which so, one? Like, which portion? Oh, my God. Any number of them. It depends on the size, the shape, and how many. So we went through a and lot how fuzzy. of... Yeah, exactly. So we went through a lot of of Randy peaches before we got to these, which we feel like are the least human. They're sophisticated peaches, for sure. I mean, yeah, well, look at the Gaffney peach, right? That thing looks like just a big butt floating over a field when you drive by it. And it's really just a sphere. They paint it. Oh, my God. So um, correct me. Sadly, this is the only book of yours that I've read, which is going to change very soon because I already bought My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is also set in our neighborhood, the old village in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Is is this the first time that you have written about vampires? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, my my publisher really didn't want to do this book for, it took me a long time to convince them, partly because of vampires. They really were like, they're overdone? No. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, there's a weird gendering thing that goes on with this kind of stuff. Like, there's this image that vampires are sort of like a subgenre of romance, you know? And so it's like, and so even though most people in publishing, I think the last number, so it's like 77%, most of people who work in publishing are women. There's this real idea that girl books like romance and vampires and urban fantasy and that kind of thing, like they're not, they're not real. They're not somehow legit. And so Mm. there was real pushback on it. So for, Listeners who don't know, the book is set in Old Village in Mount Pleasant in Charleston, South Carolina, which is also where we live, we being my wife and I. That's me. In Old Village in Mount Pleasant in Charleston. And so because of that, maybe, well, you said other books there, but because of your history in, in growing up in the old village in Mount Pleasant in Charleston, South Carolina. I, I read that you love saying that. I don't know why I've never said it before just now when I said it three times in a row, but um, I I read somewhere that you had said that a lot of this book has its origin stories and actual events that happened that you then went on to fictionalize. Can you kind of take us through some of those, like the, the, the kernels of truth that, Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not the vampire part, obviously. Yeah. And and obviously, (laughs) my mom's book club murdered their neighbor. Obviously. They're a little touchy about it, but they feel like the statute of limitations, or there is no statute of limitations on murder, really. But um, good luck proving it. Um, Well, the thing is, you know, it's a lot like everything in my book starts out as something real or a real person. And by the time it winds up on the page, it's so far divorced from reality. Um, but this is the first book that I had to sort of give to my family and like before, way before publication, like when it was in drafts and be like, I need to know if you're cool with everything, just because a lot of it is really on the nose, um, about my family. Um, and, um, they were all fine with it. You know, my mom had a thing about street numbers. She really like wanted different street numbers on pirate screws, which 
fine. Um, and one of my sisters gave me like nine pages of notes, which was interesting. Um, how many wow. did you and use? How many did you incorporate? Right. Uh, since she listens to things like this, all of them, absolutely all <laughs> and of assuming them. Assuming she doesn't. Helpful. Um, but, but the real, I mean, the big thing that's in there that really comes the closest, I mean, my mom is in a book club that's been around, I think this year's their 41st year. Mm. Um, so they've been around since I was a kid. And, um, the other two things that really do play a part, I mean, besides sort of the general Charleston stuff, right? Like the sort of fetishization of doctors and all that. Um, but, um, I, as a kid, I was completely obsessed with Nazis. Like, my dad believed that the only books that were actual books that earned the title of book was like hardcover nonfiction about World War II. And so when we go on like a vacation, he would bring like six of these giant books with him. Like his suitcase weighed like 500 pounds. <laughs> and so I grew up thinking that, you know, if a book didn't have maps showing troop movements in like Belgium, you know, it's like, what's that bullshit? Um <laughs> And, and of course, Nazis, when you're seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you don't quite get the Holocaust yet. And like you do get the cool uniforms and the fact that they were winning for many years of the war. Um, <laughs> so I was obsessed, which oh was, God. you know, led to a lot of problems. I um, love that that character is based on you. That just makes it so much richer <laughs> for me. <laughs> and, and then that's, you know, Ms. Mary is really closely based on my grandmother. Uh, my dad's mom came to live with us um, when she couldn't live on her own anymore. And she was this really, really amazing woman. I mean, I think everyone says that about their grandparents, but she was, you know, their grandparents are losers. My grandmother was amazing. Um, she, you know, both her husbands had passed away um, and she raised my dad and his sister and his brother virtually on her own in upstate South Carolina and, you know, worked all her life. She was a school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. She made huge sacrifices to send her kids to school, to college, to medical school, um, during the war, she worked in this bomb making factory where the chemicals they were exposed to turned her hair orange, which I'm oh. sure had nothing to do with the fact that when she got older, she got what we now call Alzheimer's. But at the time, like, wow. it was just like, well, that's what old people do. So she moved in with us and I was really young. And by all accounts, she and I, you know, I really loved my grandmother. She was my grandmother. But by the time she moved in with us, like she was you know, either really demented or very frustrated and angry at her situation. And so I was terrified of her growing up. And like my mom tried to integrate her into meals and to our daily life, which I think was the right thing to do. But when you're nine, it's horrifying. And so I, I've always been, you know, and so I really hated her and I was really scared of her. And I've always been really embarrassed about that. And so I guess I, you know, and I think, if she ever knew how scared I was of her, I think it would have killed her. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it really would have slayed her. And, um, and so I kind of wanted to like make some peace with that and, and give her like a hero moment, um, that she didn't get at the end of her life. And so that really, for me is the most sort of on the nose thing in the book. And then of course we, we had a dog named Ragtag, except, um, Ragtag had a much worse real life than he does in the book. Ragtag, we were going to the beach and my dad backed over Ragtag. No! Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Poor oh, Ragtag. God. I was about to say, you know, that moment with Ragtag in the book, but then he persevered, thank God. But oh. I know. <laughs> That's traumatizing. Um, it is, but he lives. Anyways. I, gosh, I have so much to say. Okay. <clears throat> About... Uh, again, with the, the women. Actually, you know what? Screw it. I want to go back to vampires. I don't feel like we fully address it. I'm a vampire Let's do it. obsessor. Um, you know, I read Dracula when I was like nine or ten. The way 10. your dad felt about Nazis, Catherine I feels know. about vampires. I know. It's so weird. <laughs> oh, my God. Nazi vampires. It's like such a Venn diagram. <laughs> There's your next book. Um, so I, I thought your vampire was really interesting because it, what you were saying about the sexualization and how, you know, you've got the the Twilight vampires and maybe a little bit with the Anne Rice vampires as well, this kind of more romantic notion. Um, but your, uh, I don't know if I'm giving anything away, but your method of how your vampire fed and right. um, what... I still don't want to visualize what came out of his mouth when all that was happening. Um, how did how did you come up with with the um, not traditional latching on to the neck? Okay, there, okay. there you go. <laughs> well, you know, it's um, with vampires you have to make a choice, right? Are they supernatural or not? And I was like, not. 
Um, because I didn't want to get into a whole religious thing. Sorry, they're doing construction in this building. Um, so I didn't want to get into a whole religious thing. And so if it's not supernatural, right? Like, okay, not scared of crosses, like, mm-hmm. you know, can't turn into a bat, you know? Um, and, and then you can say, okay, well, very strong, lives a very long time. Um, you know, no one's going to burst into flames in daylight because that doesn't make any sense, but sure. They'll get very, you know, freaked out and sunburned a very daylight sensitive um but i was like but what about the blood because you gotta have the blood drink you know somehow the blood thing and so but like the human blood supply i think it's like seven to nine thousand calories which is what's that three days four days for an active person so it's like wait unless you want to great i'm sorry are you saying that if you killed a human all of their blood would only give you seven thousand to nine thousand calories yeah, yeah. Whoa, I would have thought a human could sustain a vampire for longer than that. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and <laughs> it's funny, but there's actually academics who've like, you know, calculated these things because they're bored, I think. Um, and so I, I couldn't think of a vampire that was just dropping a body every four to five days, you know? Um, and so I was like, okay, what else could they use blood for? And I was thinking, oh, right, you know, you if, if you're a vampire, maybe you don't have bone marrow, you don't, you know, you need white blood cells, you need you need ways to clean the the impurities and and the toxic byproducts in your own system. So you latch onto a person and use them. Um, and then I was like, well, you know, it doesn't. Why would you bite someone in the neck when that's so obvious? Unless you know, scarfs aren't really in in the south. And so <laughs> then I was like, oh, the next most disgusting place, like you know, like let's let's find another vein like a big a big big vein and there it is right in your inner thigh as disgusting sexualized as you can possibly get it's so good it's so good <laughs> kate's looking at me with horror on her face but that's well, you know it's like a <laughs> of course they're gonna go for your bathing suit area you know it's hidden yeah why, oh yes and i mean if you're a proper southern lady right you can wear the little like skirt swimsuit yeah right? speaking exactly of, speaking of proper southern ladies i think it's really awesome that you focused your heroes on Southern women and having grown up down here, you understand the the generations of um, almost service that they've had down here. And I, and I read somewhere that not down here, probably all across the country, but I read somewhere that you read like the housewives instructional manuals oh. from like, <laughs> 1847, not every single one, I hope, Grady, but over the, <laughs> like the span of like 150 years, can you give us kind of a synopsis of what your takeaway was from absorbing all of that content? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the takeaway is you aren't clean enough. Your house isn't clean enough. You are too loud and smelly and take up too much room. Your children are probably going to die. You're not doing enough. Like that's really, I mean, it's a whole genre of, of books just about like, and they all sort of implicitly acknowledge that it's way too hard to be a housewife and do all this stuff yourself, but tough shit. Like you, you, you're just, you're, there you go. You just got a deal and you can't let anyone know how hard it is. And you probably already complain too much. Jeez. Like there's this amazing book from like, gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's from 1860s, I think. But, and then I, I just recently read another one from around 1900 that had the same advice. It's like, if you go to your friend's house and you see something that you want to ask them about, don't ask them about it. No one wants to hear your questions. Oh my God. <laughs> what, was the, what, so what was the explanation for that? That you just, just shouldn't be curious you, and you that shouldn't. it was written by a man. <laughs> yeah, well, like, exactly. Well, like, this this idea that, like, you know, well, if they think it's important and want to talk about it, they'll bring it up. But otherwise, don't say anything. Don't comment on their house. Don't comment on the room. Don't comment on what they're doing. That was my favorite thing. If she is doing needlework, do not comment on the needlework <laughs> she's doing. Like, it's just such a great, like, keep it to yourself, you know? It's And it's kind of like... um you know, it makes the, there's this way in reading these things that makes the whole world seem like this like dark ride, you know, like a a carnival, like you're just on these rails moving forward. Keep your hands inside the boat and don't bother anything. (laughs) What was it? What did all of that content that you consumed say about like the female body and the ways in which they were supposed to keep it or not keep it in certain shape? Well, you know, that was what was interesting. A lot of that stuff, certainly in the 19th century, what I read, and that's, I am not an expert. I'm just a, a amateur 
Um, but like a lot of the stuff, they didn't really talk about bodies. Like bodies were things that other people had that you took care of when they got sick or when, you know, keeping your husband well fed and happy and the house not damp and all this stuff. Um, but, and all, but, but there's this whole 19th century undercurrent about blood. Like, you know, like I was just reading, God, what this amazing bit about menstruation. And it's like, it's basically this whole thing that's like once a month, a woman goes insane from having too much blood in her body and she loses her mind and gibbers like a lunatic. And it's really <laughs> like, it's really bonkers. Um, and, but there was also this idea that you maybe didn't have enough blood. Like there's a great painting, I think from the 18, gosh, I think the 1890s, um, yeah, eight from 1898 called The Blood Drinkers. And apparently um, it was like this huge sensational painting of the year. And what happened is that women who were thought to be consumptive would go to slaughterhouses. And when they slaughtered an ox or a cow or whatever, they would like hold glasses up, like whoever killed it would hold glasses up to like its, its artery and give them like fresh hot blood to drink mm. um, to try to like make them stronger um, because women were viewed to have like thinner blood than men. Um, I mean, it's just all this craziness. Um, wow. But uh, yeah. And um, so, but medically, like in terms of your body, that stuff didn't really start coming they in. They weren't supposed to be like fit and skinny. That started later. That stuff starts coming in in the 20th century. Yeah. And like, more and more of it. And like, it's interesting. Like I remember as a kid in the seventies and eighties, you know, most drugstores still had a diet aid aisle, which was all just, you know, uppers. Wow. It was all just like quote unquote diet pills, which is all just speed. I mean, I used to, I used to buy diet pills and take them when I was in like my senior year of high school, like you got a nice rush. Just for fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> can you, can um, I still I get mean, those? It was, it was epinephrine. <laughs> no, I think it's illegal now. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they had epinephrine, and then I can't remember what the pills I got from this mm. drugstore was, but all the gas stations started selling truck drivers' friends. They were called mini fins, and they were even better. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, this, but the, yeah, that was definitely a part of the 20th century of like, you know, you had to, this idea of not taking up space, whether it was mm. like mental space or physical space. Um, and then there was this whole strain of sort of what, I, I think it's like domestic nonfiction. It was like a lot of like in the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, but like women writing about their household and raising kids. And it got Shirley Jackson wrote these great two books called Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons that are her version of these. And they were originally published as articles in like Ladies Home Journal and Good Housekeeping. But they're savage. They're really, really funny. I mean, she's most famous for like Haunting a Pill House. Yeah, and you've I was always say, the castle. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But she did these and they're great. I mean, it's about teaching her kids how to make her cocktails and like making them empty <laughs> so ashtrays. Well, they're kind Maybe. of satire, but they're also, <laughs> yeah, they're really funny, but really... I don't know. You, they're really heartfelt because a lot of it is about. There's one great essay where she's like, she's going to give birth to one of her kids, and the nurse is like, "You have to write down your occupation." And she writes down "writer," and the nurse crosses it out and puts in "housewife." Um, <laughs> and you know, this was after she like published the lottery and was like a really big deal. Um, and so, but wow. they're really great. But out of that and out of those articles in the 60s and 70s and 80s you got all these syndicated columnists like Irma Bombeck and Nancy Stahl and stuff who would write these like wry kind of ironic thing my kids are driving me crazy and I was obsessed with those when I was a kid I don't know why I couldn't stop reading them I guess it was like my family was sort of messed up like everyone else's family and so I wanted to see what like a normal family was like um a normal and those family. Were, yeah. <laughs> right. Like those don't exist. But I, <laughs> I have to say one of these, and she wasn't so much a domestic nonfiction writer, but there's a writer named Florence King, who I think is from Georgia, who's passed away now, but she wrote mostly in the 70s and 80s. Most of her books are out of print, but she there was a collection of her articles and some of her essays and stuff. One's called Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady. Mm -hmm. And like Florence King is an amazing writer. She is she really knows what gruesome and gross is when she sees it. And she is, she will say everything. And she is, you know, 
openly gay. She's openly not given a fuck. She <laughs> is just amazing. And her stuff, and I mean, I'm kind of blown away it's fallen out of print. Like, it's a little bit like Dorothy Allison if she was funnier and a little less messed up. Her stuff's great. If you can find it in print, it's really worth seeking out. And, and how did all of this content for our listeners, how did all of it influence the book? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I love yeah. that. Um, and actually, I want to follow oh, up on that question okay. because I, it, especially after everything I just heard you say, I feel like with what you've written in your most recent book, whether it was intended or not, it was very much um, like a, a empowering female manifesto, which, you know, the whole joke is that your book is kind of like Steel Magnolias meets Dracula, but these women are amazing. And was that part of your intention to have this kind of female empowerment energy behind it? You know, I don't know if it was that conscious, but I did, you know, I did want to take the readers on the same sort of journey I had, which went from like seeing the women of my mom's generation and hating them, you know, just really being like, what a bunch of losers. They're housewives. I think you call them they powder puffs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And getting to know them as adults and realizing that, like, they handled a lot of sh stuff I wasn't aware of. And yeah. they kept it on the down low. And they really, you know, they they were intense. I mean, you know, my, um, my aunt, uh, or one of my aunts, you know, um, she got sent to one of those homes for unwed mothers and had a kid who she sort of mourned her entire life. And none of us knew that until much, much later. The same with one of my great aunts who who was sort of a member of our family. Like, not a great aunt in the sense of, like, she was, like, out to pasture, but, like, she was a very active part of the family. Um, you know, and one of her kids got in touch with her that she had had to give up for adoption. And, you know, these women went through a lot. And they didn't talk about it because that's not what you did. And my mom, you know, she didn't go to college because her her dad only had girls. He had three girls. And they just felt like, why would you waste that money on a girl? Mm -hmm. um, there's a moment, and I don't remember if it's in the final draft of Southern Book Club or not, but when my mom gave birth to my middle sister, they called her grandmother, and it was like one in the morning. You know, I mean, you know, you're delivering a baby. It's not a timetable. And they called her at one in the morning to say, oh, we've just given birth. We're naming her Catherine after great aunt Catherine, blah, blah, blah. And great aunt said, you woke me up in the middle of the night to tell me you've had a girl. You may as well just throw her in the trash for all the good she's going to do you. Uh, I mean, <laughs> this was like the 60s. This was not that long ago. And so, I mean, there was just this real attitude that women who were doing all this work. I mean, one of the things I have to catch myself in interviews is I keep referring to, to, oh, well, you know, these women who don't have jobs and well, they do have jobs. They do a lot of work, but it's just not a nine to five job they're paid money for. So all these women who were holding these houses together, who were dealing with these kids, who were providing a support network for their husband who was working, who sometimes themselves were working, like they really get treated as nothings. And, I don't know anyone who can look at that and not feel a little bit irked by the unfairness of it. Yeah. And I certainly was. <laughs> um, and so I just sort of wanted to write a book that went from you feel like you have these women's number to realizing that these women are capable of a lot more um, than, than you know. I also noticed, I mean, there's a major spotlight that you put on race issues and marginalization with, with, um, I mean, I, with the, I'm blanking on the character's name right Ms. now. Ms. Green. Thank you. She was so awesome. And everything that was going on in Six Mile, um, which, you know, it, we, we live in Charleston, obviously. And to As this we've day, pointed out a couple times we, we so pointed far. Out, we, we live in the old village in Mount <laughs> That's Pleasant how I in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we talk about it a lot. Um, and, you yeah. know, it's still very much a thing, you know, where Charleston's an amazing city to live in but there's still so much segregation here. Um, oh, yeah. And I, I just, I don't know, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, what you were thinking about when you added that character and how sure. your vampire decided who his prey was and who he thought was disposable, et cetera. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, I was terrified about this book coming out because there, there's an assault scene later on in it that I was very worried about writing. And also, um, but it kind of came up and it's like, I don't want to be one of those writers who's like, oh, I have no control over the story. But it's just like, you know what things you need to include and which you don't. Mm-hmm. So that was something I was really worried about. Writing. And also writing, you know, this relationship between Ms. Green and Patricia. Um, Ms. Green's an African-American woman. She takes, she's a home health care attendant who takes care of Ms. Mary and, and really part of the household, uh, of, of the Campbell household. Um, and you know, I can only write, I have to, I have to write stuff the way I saw it, um, and the way I experienced it. And if, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it doesn't sort of meet you know, current standards of, of how people think relationships between black and white people should be. I get it, but this is what I saw and it's my experience. And, um, and one, and it's sort of one of these things that I felt like the perceived weakness was a strength. Like when James Harris, the vampire, like spoiler alert in the book about slaying a vampire, there's a vampire. (laughs) Um, but when he moves to Charleston, um, and I'm sure that gives people in Charleston conniptions. I'm sure they're sitting there listening. That's going Mount Pleasant, not Charleston, Mount Pleasant. (laughs) Um, when he moves to Charleston, he realizes that there's a time coming, right? When you need a home address and a bank account and photo ID, and he needs to settle down and he can't just keep slipping through the cracks in the system. And where else is someone going to take a white dude who seems to be of a certain background and educated and has a certain amount of money at face value? And it's probably going to be a smaller Southern town. And he also sees double bonus as long as he preys on the children of the working class who are largely African-American, who's going to care? And that's something you see now. I mean, you know, there's been this idea that most serial killers are white. And now they're starting to discover that there have been African-American serial killers, but they went largely undetected and unreported for a very long time because no one was investigating the crimes because the victims were largely African-American and often lived in rural communities. Um, there's a famous one in North Carolina where the uh, guy was killing people, still hasn't been caught, but in unincorporated townships. And they're all African-American, very marginalized uh, sex workers. And many of them have addiction issues and things. And so, you know, these are the most vulnerable people. And, um, and so... One of the things James Harris doesn't get, and I think it's one of these things that a lot of people don't get, is even though he views all these people as sort of like easy targets because no one cares about them, every white woman in South Carolina or in Charleston, when I was growing up, had a black woman who she saw every day, who she paid to help take care of her kids, to cook, to help take care of an older relative, to clean, to to in some kind of service or domestic capacity. And oftentimes these women got very involved with each other's lives. It's very complicated by race and class and all these things. But these women, they knew each other's families. They cared in many cases about what happened to each other. And so that's something that James Harris doesn't see. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, I guess, the flaw in his plan. And, you know, Ms. Green is is based in some part on a, on a woman who took care of um, my grandmother uh, when she lived with us, who really who really held our family together. And it is not lost on me that she held our family together. And all that time she spent doing that was time she wasn't with her family. Um, I get it. I'm not dumb. Um, but I will always and we will always owe her a debt that it's hard to repay and she and my mother are very close to this day and are still very much involved in each other's lives and um and and so i wanted to talk about that and i get it there's a lot of like tiptoeing there and and i tried my best but you know the, the women like ms green that i knew were very very proud very perceptive very very smart women who were not fooled by the landscape they saw around them. They, they could, they could sum up a family in about three sentences after being around them for eight hours. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that got across. And it's, it sounded like you had some, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some concern about writing about women and race since the book is oh, sure. since the book has come out though it's it's a, I haven't seen or read anything where anyone had any qualms about how you portrayed anything. 
No, which is that's yeah. good to hear. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I'd like know, to bring one up, one though. The, <laughs> oh yeah, 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 please. No, no, I'm kidding. I don't have oh. any qualms either. <laughs> no, I hey, come at me with a knife. Um, <laughs> and you know, also one of the things for me that really brought this book together is that I was flying into Charleston once to visit family, like as I started writing this book, and I was looking out the window and I realized that all the lakes, or not lakes, what the hell am I talking about? The harbor and the Cooper River and the Wando and all the sort of like little tributaries in the marsh, it looks like a circulatory system with arteries and veins and capillaries. And, um, you know, and I saw you know, some of these subdivisions that are starting to get built in wetlands or have been built in wetlands, it just looked like these big patches of dead flesh. And and it really made me realize that the 90s was really when that sort of like overdevelopment snowball in Charleston started rolling downhill. And, you know, one of the places it got hit, it, I mean, and you still see this stuff with the unincorporated townships like Eight Mile and things, which are mostly African-American and they don't get a lot of city services. And when they do get city services, they get a lot of strings attached. And it's really still a really contentious issue. Um, but that really started in the 90s, this idea that, you know, Charleston and the low country started kind of cannibalizing itself um, for money. Okay. So you, 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 you just brought up the nineties and I wanted to talk a little bit about the nineties as someone who came of age in the nineties. But I think when you come of age in a decade, you might not have the same perspective on it because you're just so emotionally right. attached to it. I, so I, I, I can tell you about the culture of the nineties, but I, I can't give you any sort of broad picture, like analysis about what the nineties meant, right? I can talk to you about Michael Jordan and wind pants and umbros and, you know, uh, culture stuff, but I don't have any like perspective. One thing I saw was that, you know, the, the nineties was a time when we seemed to be between a lot of movements, you know, right Right. after civil rights, before black lives matter, after, you know, the feminist movement before me too, like, is it accurate to say and from your perspective to say the 90s weren't as kind of socially active or or is that just my like 15 year old perspective of it it's weird right because like it's so hard like figuring out figuring out parenting like i had to interview so many people i know who have kids to be like okay dude you got to tell me what this is like cuz i don't have kids <laughs> yeah. that and then trying to get some kind of perspective on the 90s was really really hard like you're saying um I mean, I read all these, all the big, you know, listening to Prozac and the erotic silence of the American wife and like all this stuff and like um, Iron John and uh, women who run with wolves. And I'm just trying to get a handle on it. And the 90s are weird because, you know, you look at the beginning, because I remember the 90s because I went to university in 91. And like, I remember the 90s being really socially engaged, but that might just be because I was of an age where I was really socially engaged, yeah. you know? Um, but like, I, you know, you look at the early 90s and you're like, okay, there were the Anita Hill hearings. And that in 92, I think, sparked this massive wave of women running for Congress. And um, you had the, the March for Women's Lives in 92 or 3, which was like half a million people marching for reproductive rights on D.C., which I remember was covered live on like all the networks. You know, Cindy Lauper sang. It was a big deal. Um, and then you had and, and also like the Riot Girl movement in the early 90s. A lot of like Take Back the Night marches were going on then. Um, you had like, you know, Janet Reno and all this stuff, like all these and Madeline Albright and all these women in these positions of power where they hadn't been before and Hillary Clinton, you know, the first time we met her. And, um, and then like, then you look at, and, and, and every big female singer songwriter, right? Like has yeah. her roots, her first album mm-hmm. band in the early nineties. And then like, you look at the end of the nineties and it's boy bands and kid rock and limp biscuit and all this sort of like, like cock rock and you look at like and like hip-hop is getting super super gangsta at the end of the 90s right and like super super like the the most popular parts of hip-hop are not the fun bubblegum parts like run dmc but like the much like the more angry nwa parts and like and the less political you know it's much less political than public enemy was in the 80s and then you look also at like um the fact that like you have that whole like 
and I don't know how to describe it. Someone described it as the female chauvinist pig movement at the end of the 90s, where it was this idea that, like, girl, lighten up about porn, ladies. You know, just have a cigar and pour yourself a scotch and go to a strip club, ironically. like you. And this whole pressure on women to be good sports about things like that. Um, and you had, and, and what I really, and you, and you also had like, you know, abortion clinics being bombed and doctors being shot, you know, throughout the later nineties. And you look at, and, and I realized that like 94 was the contract with America. And that was really when things started to get this whole like conservative cultural warfare. And it's, it's really, really weird. Like, so I read all the copies of the post and courier from 93, um, like I went through and I didn't read every page, but I like read every front page and went through it, you know, for the whole year. And I don't know if you all remember at all the Shannon Faulkner stuff at the Citadel, but she was the first woman to apply to the Citadel, our, our vaunted all boys military academy. And dude, every day the paper had a headline about Shannon Faulkner and the end of manhood. No it is way. like, I have not, I have not seen an 18 year old girl cause so much pearl clutching and, and, you know, swooning as, as Shannon Faulkner did. And now, you know, no one gives a shit. Like no yeah. one cares. Like it's, it's really weird. So the nineties, like I think women, a lot of weird stuff happened with women in the nineties. Like you go from the beginning and then you look at the end and you're like, what happened here? It's weird. I don't know. I mean, you lived through it, right? You're women. Like, I don't yeah, know Yeah, but I was like 15, Yeah, but everything 16. you did was just so much more eloquent than my brain could ever like, come the, up with. Uh, honestly, if you wanted to ask me about the 90s, I'm the 90s, like, oh. like Air Well, Jordans. you know, and also, <laughs> I was also going to say, also, like, you know, at the beginning of the 90s, like, the Clinton is the one in the 90s who deregulated the banks. Like, it's the last time we had a president impeached. Um, Walmart in 1991 was a pretty big company. At the end of the 90s, it was the largest private employer in the world. Like, you know, the 90s were a lot of like stuff we live now sort of has its roots there. Mm, yeah. um, okay. Including Kid Rock. Including thank God. Rock. Thank God for Kid Rock. Well, now I have the new term, Cock Rock. So thank you for that education. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. To are be are so you glad longer. that that was my takeaway? I'm like, oh, Cock Rock, yes. Cock Rock. Um, <laughs> So, okay, Jonathan, I was talking, texting with Jonathan Sanchez of Blue Bicycle last night, and he mentioned something about you singing songs from paperbacks from hell <laughs> presentation. Is this, can you tell me about this? Like, do we get a little yeah, ditty out you of know, you? <laughs> I, I hate doing author events as much as most people hate going to author events. Like, we've all been to author <laughs> events where you want to saw your own head off. You're like, oh my God, <laughs> make this end. And so... Around the time I did my best friend's exorcism, I was like, I got to do something here because this is, yeah, I like going out and meeting people. I like being on the road. I like meeting people who read my books. I like the weird stuff that happens, but I feel like you got to give people an evening entertainment. They left the house, you know, like that's a big deal. So I did this book called Paperbacks from Hell about sort of the horror paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. And so I decided I'm going to do a show. So I do this really stupid hour-long show with that. It's like got slides and I sing songs and do all this ridiculous stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, songs about skeleton doctors and killer jellyfish. And then I did a heavy metal horror book called We Sold Our Souls. So I do a, a show about heavy metal and horror um, where I get to read from all these like amazing memoirs by like some of the most boneheaded musicians ever. Um, and then I was going to do a big vampire show Um for this, but mm. I don't know. We had a plague, so plague oh, came in. Please, okay, please save it for later. And can we find any of this on YouTube? Is this no? One of the <sighs> things I think you probably could look it around, but one of the things I ask people when I do this stuff is like not to record it because, like, I really I like being I in a room with people that. and just having them being like, like, let's be present. Yeah. Like, like I just like I don't know. There's something about people looking at their phones and stuff, and I'm like, I get it, man. I'm on my phone as much as anyone else, but I'm like can't we all just be in a room just right here, right now? And like anyone who's not here, just tell them it was the greatest experience of your life and they missed out and their lives are going to be hollow, empty shells because of that. <laughs> yeah. like, you know? Well, that's good because that's how I'm feeling right now that I can't watch it. So yeah. as soon as your vampire presentation comes around, I will be in the front seat with my phone left in the car, locked. Yes. Um, all right. Okay, so at the end of this, we always like to ask just like a few quick little authory questions. Nothing, you know, just yeah. lighthearted stuff. So... Um, what was the last book you read? 
Oh gosh, the last book I read was, oh my God, this is so obnoxious. The last book I read was, and I have it right here so I can give you the actual title, Wasteland, The Great War and the Origins of Modern Horror, which I just oh. finished this morning. By it's by it's about World War One and sort of the impact it had on horror in this century. But it's actually written by Scott Poole, who is a professor at the College of Charleston. Um, oh, okay, and he's written a bunch of amazing books um, about horror. He wrote a great biography of um, Vampira, and um, he wrote a really good book about H.P. Lovecraft and another one about Satan in America. So who knew that the College of Knowledge has like this hidden talent? Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm I'm going to basically beg you to make a video for my online book club. It's called the Inky Phoenix because I've been having people come on and do little videos of their favorite hunker down books. And I feel like your list will dominate. You have to say yes. Everyone we're else's list dominate yeah. their list. No, 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 sure. I'll, I'll Skype into your book club, whatever. I'm, I'll, I'm Yay. locked in an office. Yay. Like, I don't care. It's the way to get out. <laughs> um, uh, favorite book as a child. Favorite book as a child, like as a really little child or a slightly older child? Uh, Either one. Whatever's more interesting. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I, my library was the Mount Pleasant Public Library, the one that's right up the street from y'all, the little tiny one. Yeah. Um, And I loved this book called Robert the Rose Horse. And it was basically about a horse who was allergic to roses, who became a police officer for unknown reasons and like caught a criminal, but had to overcome this rose allergy. And I would check that book out like every week and it was always there. And later, what I found out many, many years later is that Ms. Earhart, the librarian there, had realized how addicted I was because I check out books and then go home and then be like, I got to go back to the library because I want Robert the Rose horse again. And like, I'd always think I could do without it. And then I have to go back. And she realized how upset I'd be if I didn't have that book. And so she had hunted down, it was out of print. She had hunted down a copy and pasted in a card thing at the front, you know, a checkout slip and yeah. stamped it with the library. And she kept it behind the desk so that every time I wanted Robert the Rose horse, it would be there. Mm. And she, she actually passed away earlier this year. And she had such a huge impact on my life. And that that really simple act of kindness meant a huge amount to me as a kid. And I don't think she ever realized how much it meant, but um, that was a really big deal for me. And then when I was older, probably like 12 or 13, um, there was a book I loved called The Park is Mine. I think the author's name is Stephen Peters. And this was like an adult military kind of book. Like I didn't read horror because the covers grossed me out, but this book is about like, it's from like 78 or 80. And it's about a Vietnam vet who decides he's going to take over central park and fill it with like booby traps. And then he, no one's going to take it. He's just going to have it. So the cops come in and they all step on landmines and die. It's literally a book about a dude murdering cops. And like, that's all that happens. He just murders cops throughout this entire book. And I, loved it it was like it had all that forensic detail about shooting people mm-hmm. that like a 12 year old boy this during wants. your nazi obsession no chance? this was like post <laughs> this was like post nazis um but i was still pretty into world war ii in general and i also just think like look how much 12 year old boys love call of duty like that's that scratches some weird itch and like this book i if I loved this book as much now as I did then, I'd have been put on a list easily. If I'd be seeing the school counselor, but that book, man, that book was, oh, that was my, my catnip. Um, horror movie or horror film, excuse me, horror novel or horror film. Like which do I prefer books or movies or which horror, do I like though. of each? But, but with your, in the horror genre. Would you rather oh, 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 oh. read one or watch one? It's kind of hard word to say. Oh, horror, 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 the horror, the rural horror. Oh, um, the horror. I, I prefer reading to be honest. Like I grew up watching, but these days it's like, I'm a pretty fast reader. And so like, I like that more, but like, I'll watch a horror movie any day. I just have a hard time finding stuff. I haven't seen that. I really love anymore. Mm. Um, you know, but, but if you're looking for favorites, man, return of the living dead, Period. Full stop. Not just one of the best horror movies ever made. One of the best movies ever made. Period. I will. I will fight anyone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dracula or Lost Boys. Dracula. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Um, Eighties or the nineties. Dracula's great. Hey, hey, Dracula will always be my number one. So I'm I'm on your team. Um, Nina Harker, man, she is one of the most amazing characters in 
literature ever. Like everything that's supposed to make her, yeah, everything that's supposed to make her weaker, she turns into a weapon. Like, like she's a secret. She's just like a a school mistress. Well, now she knows shorthand. She's keeping all the notes and she knows all the train schedules, like because she memorized them for her husband and like Dracula bites her and mind controls her. And she just boomerangs that and turns it into like, how to fight Dracula. She's awesome. Oh my gosh. I love this interpretation. Okay. And then the most important question that we ask all of our guests, chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin? Oh man, chocolate chip cookie. Who are the monsters who say oatmeal raisin? That's like who me. are they That's trying my... to oppress? That's me. And uh, I'm <laughs> Grady. I love oatmeal raisin and it's a sophisticated cookie. <laughs> but but here's the thing, like like oatmeal rate like why do the raisins have to be in there? Why do these shriveled dead grapes have to be in your cookie? Because you know what a chocolate chip cookie has in it? Delicious chocolate. You Thank have like you. dead grapes. Grapes corpses. <laughs> Oh you just took it to the next level. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Thanks, Grady. I appreciate it. And I think I also hey, look, learned I think I also learned that I don't live in Charleston, I live in Mount Pleasant, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's so, so one of my favorite Charleston stories is after the Emanuel AME shooting, um, like the, that night NPR had uh, Joe Riley on and, um, and, and, you know, he, and he really was great. I, and, and, you know, Mayor Joe's a legend and he's, he's, he said his piece and everything. And I think it's like Mar, Mara Eliasson or someone. And she's like, thank you so much for joining us, Mayor Riley. You know, we, our hearts go out to Charleston. He says, oh, 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 darling, darling, can I say one more thing? She's like, well, of course, Mayor, what would you like to say? I, I, I want your listeners to know that Dylan Roof was not from charleston he's from upstate from irmo so he's not from here and i just love the fact that in the middle of this tragedy Mm -hmm. joe riley wanted to make it real clear that he was not from charleston wow these are things i need to learn it's only been a couple years grady yeah and i'm from from new york so i've got a lot to learn you know i went to uh to school with these two guys who moved to Charleston with their parents when they were two years old. And my dad will still say, and they've lived there all their lives. They've lived in Charleston all their lives. They're now almost 50 years old. And my dad will still say, well, they're not from here, right? I mean, they, they, they're from Chicago. Be like, Dad, they <laughs> yep. moved here when they're two. They've lived wow. here for 48 years. He's like, right, but they're not from here. We will always be the outsiders. At least in New York, if you're there 10 years, you get your New York New card. You know, yeah. like... That Who seems told fair. You that? I feel like I still don't have mine. Oh, you didn't get it in the mail? <laughs> yeah. No, oh my God, someone years. stole it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's also the thing, the problem with New York is like you move, anytime you move here, the city just stopped being cool. Like I moved here in 92 and everyone was like, oh, yeah, 89, that was way better. <laughs> and, and so my nephew moved here a few years ago and he's like, you lived here in the 90s? I was like, oh yeah, it was way better than now, dude. It's like a circle of violence, <laughs> circle of abuse. It's so true. Uh, well, thank you so much, Grady. We really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry. I, I know I tend to, to go on a bit. I apologize. No, this has been wildly entertaining. Thank you for being I'm, the best red person I think we've talked to and wildly just, you, you make us laugh. <laughs> and and, and oh, to and listeners, can, these books, I mean, he's so funny. You're so funny. And everyone needs to go onto your website and read your bio because it's one of the best bios <laughs> I've ever read in my entire life. Thank you. And actually, can I say one other thing really quickly? Of course. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, because you guys mentioned the Blue Bicycle Bookstore a few times, and I just want to say that right now, anyone who wants to buy a book, like, I, I love Amazon, Amazon's great, etc., but Amazon will be here yes. next year. Um, a lot of independent bookstores are really, really up against the wall right now, and going on, the, having my book tour canceled and watching all these independent bookstores, like, pivot immediately from being a brick and mortar store to being an online store with virtual events has been breathtaking. And, but they really, really need your support. And most of them are using a platform called bookshop.org where you can pick the bookstore that you're shopping from, but it will be your orders fulfilled by Ingram. Who's one of the big uh, distributor book distributors. It comes in the mail, you pay a few bucks for shipping and they have a huge, huge list. I mean, I found everything I need there and Southern Book Club's Guide to Saying Vampires is definitely there. And the proceeds go to an independent bookstore. And you're going to pay about $4 or $5 more than you would on Amazon. But honestly, like 
that couple of bucks is what we pay to have neighbors. Um, once these bookstores go away, they don't come back. I remember Chapter 2 Bookstore in downtown Charleston when I was a kid. That was the downtown bookstore. And when it went away, it was almost 15 years before Jonathan opened Blue Bicycle. And that was 15 years where downtown Charleston did not have a bookstore. And so please, these places, they need us right now. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. And to our listeners, Grady actually just sent a bunch of signed amazing book plates, actually the best book plates I've ever seen, highly personalized. And you can get them (laughs) from Blue Bicycle. It's on the Inky Phoenix Book Club tab. So you can pick yours up there and be supporting the author and supporting all the good works of authors and writers and booksellers out there. So thank you so much for your brain and your entertainment and your passion. And we loved having you on. Oh, dude, thanks for having me. And anytime you want me to Skype into your book club, just email. I'm okay. there. I'm going to start harassing you on text messages once we hang up. Don't worry. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> thanks, All right, thanks, All right. Bye. Bye, y'all. And you can put a stake in it because that's a wrap. S-T-A-K-E. <laughs> Not S-T-A-K. S-T-A-K-E. That's Correct. right. Put a stake in it. Put it directly into the heart. Because if you put it... Put it medium rare right into it, baby. Just put that stake on me. Stake me. But, but you can tell that's why this show is over. We have run out of things to say, but we what? love you guys. What? We love you. What? And if you love us, you can follow us on Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast. You can reach us on Gmail at Free Cookies Podcast at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard at the top of the show, when you heard Lindsay Collins's voice dropped on Free Cookies, you can listen to more of her on FNB Radio, which is her podcast. Who also produces us, not her podcast, the actual Lindsay produces us. You can also support us at Patreon to help keep us ad free. If you could just have like a dollar to spare or, you know, $10,000 to spare, (laughs) whatever you want to give us. You know, I don't know. Everybody's different. Hey, you know, you do you. Disposable income is different for everybody. Those people. But if you just want to support us in a non-financial kind of way, you can go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And a big shout out to Annie Hops and Only Mildly Satisfied 3000. I really want to know what that means. Thank you for your five-star reviews. And you're very, these reviews are so long and they're so well-written. And you guys are part of my book club, The Inky Phoenix at The Inky Phoenix on Instagram.com. Wow, Ashi the asshole just perked up on that one. Ashi the asshole is sitting right over there on the couch, guys. This is honestly where you get the good stuff. you need to wrap it up and feed me some chisel. No, no, I want to keep going and drop those golden nuggets just like Ashi drops nuggets. Right out of her booty. (laughs) Right there out of her booty. And then she bend and slurps. Let's go. Be old bend and slurp. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Told you the goodness is here. Plop.